0: I just have to say, we wondered if we would ever sing like that again in here. (laughs) I'm glad we were wrong. So normally we stand for the gospel reading, and this is the gospel nonetheless, but we're going to sit today because I want you actually to open your Bible, and that might be hard to do if you're standing. So I want you to open your Bible. There are pew Bibles um, in front of you. And we're opening to Mark 6. It is page 40 in the New Testament section, if you have the Pew Bible, if that's easier to find it that way. And I failed to say this last time but um, earlier, but I want to name, if you're able, if you don't have a child squirming next to you, to keep it open as I go, um, because we're going to look at the story, and I want you to see it with me, okay? I looked at it this week. I want you to look at it with me this morning. Um, So, we're going to read from Mark 6, 14 to 29. Um, Hold on, here we go. King Herod heard of it, it being all the stuff that Jesus is doing, okay, so everything before. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in Jesus. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, Bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill John, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man. And Herod protected John. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. And when his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half my kingdom. The daughter goes out and says to her mother, what should I ask for? And the mother replied, the head of John the baptizer Immediately, the daughter rushes back to the king and requests, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I heard that, what? (laughs) The king was deeply grieved. Yet out of regard for his oaths and his guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And then the girl gave it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Keep it open, as I mentioned. So there's a 2015 New York Times article that we as a staff love to draw from occasionally to spark conversation. It is called The 36 Questions That Lead to Love. So question number 33. If you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? What would you most regret not having told someone, and why haven't you told them yet? So I'm curious how you would answer. A confession, maybe? A moment of honesty? Maybe just simple words like, I love you, or I'm sorry. I've been asking people all week, What does regret look like in your life? It's the conversation starter everybody wants to have. (laughs) When are you most likely to be overcome with regret? What's your relationship like with regret? Even after the first service, after the sermon, someone came to me and said, well, to talk about regret, we need about three hours and a bottle of wine. (laughs) We don't have that kind of time right now. Are you someone who keeps a running list in your mind that you rehearse occasionally? Or are you someone who's like, no regrets? I read something this week that just said, the person who says no regrets is denying everything. I asked a friend this week about whether she lives with regrets, and she goes, (laughs) regrets are my favorite pastime. (laughs) Most people clarified that they might replay the past just to wonder, what if things had been different? Right? to kind of wonder about different decisions and what it would lead to. But this morning, I want us to think about regrets, not just as what-ifs, but those regrets that bring about sadness and disappointment, especially the moments where we wonder if we were to blame for what happened. Regret can be that sinking feeling that you should have known better, The great desire to undo what has already been done. Drew and I's favorite artist Brandi Carlile sings, when you're wearing on your sleeve all the things you regret, you can only remember what you want to forget. We fear living with regret. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, economist Daniel Kahneman suggests that regret is actually a personal punishment that we administer to ourselves. Kahneman finds his research that simply the possibility of future regret impacts the decisions we make in the present, because we don't want to feel that way. And that we're actually more likely to kick ourselves for something that we have produced by our own action than by our inaction, which is to say, if we feel like we are Doing something that will contribute to a negative outcome, we will blame ourselves all the more. And we are so terrified of carrying that around. We fear being the one to blame. We fear being the one held accountable for some future tragedy or loss or failure. We all do at different times. I listened to a book recently Matt Haig's novel, The Midnight Library. And in the Midnight Library, we find a 35-year-old woman, Nora Seed, who is stuck in the Midnight Library, which is a place between life and death, where she has to face this question of what would life have been like if she had made different decisions? And she's there in the Midnight Library with her childhood librarian, who looks the same as when she was a child, Mrs. Elm. And Mrs. Elm ushers her through this experience. Haig writes, between life and death, there is a library. And within that library, the shelves go on and on forever. And every book on the shelf provides a chance to try out a life you could have lived, to see how things would have been different if you'd made different choices. Would you have done anything different if you had the chance to undo your regrets? And there's one book in the library that's different than all the others. It's a stone gray book with small typeface embossed on the cover, the book of regrets, that holds every single regret Nora Seed has ever thought. It ranges from the everyday, like, I regret not exercising today, to the major, I regret not telling my father I loved him before he died. It goes on things like, I regret not doing more for the environment. I regret spending the time I spent on social media. I regret not going to Australia with Izzy. I regret not having more fun when I was younger. I regret all those arguments with dad. I regret not learning how to be a happier person. I regret feeling so much guilt. I regret not getting married. I regret not keeping healthy. I regret moving to London. I regret disappointing my father. I regret that I teach piano more than I play it. I regret not living in the countryside. I regret not yet having children. This one flashing on and off as it's a regret that sometimes is and sometimes isn't. (laughs) See, Nora is in the Midnight Library because she is stuck in a cycle of regret to the point where she can't stand any more regrets getting added to the list. And I was reminded of Nora and her mental, emotional paralysis over regret when I discovered Herod hiding here in Mark 6. So here's what might be included in Herod's book of regrets. Just a small glimpse. I regret marrying my brother's wife. (laughs) I regret letting grudges go on for too long. I regret imprisoning the religious teacher I've been following. I regret following that guy at all. I regret having my daughter come in and dance for my friends. I regret impressing my guests by offering a whatever you ask of me. I regret beheading the religious teacher I've been following. I regret scapegoating my problems and never facing them. Herod may be a king, And he's able to throw fabulous parties and he can behead whoever he needs to behead in the moment. But undoing what he's done, that's beyond his powers. I mean, look at verse 14. Do you see how ridiculous Herod is? Herod is convinced that John the baptizer has come back from the dead, ready to seek revenge for his gruesome murder at Herod's recent birthday banquet. The story that Herod is telling himself is that karma is real and it's coming. God is a God of retribution. And Herod's punishment is due at his doorstep at any moment. We've all had moments where we feel like our demise is coming. And that regret weighs on us like a 20-ton weight on our chest. So what do we do when the stories that we're telling ourselves Predict our demise and we are stuck. I mean, Herod's irrationality begs the question: Herod, what are you, what's going on? Like, what are you thinking? I mean, it's generally weird. Assuming that Jesus to be the resurrected John the Baptist makes no sense, as John and Jesus were contemporaries, right? So, John dies before, uh, not before Jesus' birth, but after. The timeline does not hold. And we, the reader, see that if Herod, who is the powers and principalities, should be worried, he should be worried about Jesus, not John. Further, the fear of divine punishment completely contradicts John the Baptist's message, which he loved. He sees John, this messenger of repentance and forgiveness of sins, as returning now beheaded, with a new message of retribution and punishment. But let's get real. Regret doesn't speak common sense language to us. When we're in regret, we're not the most rational people. So then I have the question for Mark, our gospel writer. Why? Why is this in here? Why did you include this story? Why did you put so many details in there? Why the head on a platter presented to the daughter who gives it to the mother? If you look at the story in Mark, what comes right before it is Jesus has sent out the disciples to go preach about forgiveness. And then we find Herod paralyzed for three verses, a recounting of what happened for 13 verses, and then come crowds to Jesus surrounding him, leading to the beloved story of feeding the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish, a story you probably love to read. You probably didn't see what happened right before. As we know, Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark doesn't waste words. He doesn't spend any time with an elaborate birth story. That's not in Mark. Jesus stills the storm in seven verses, sends out the disciples in seven verses, is baptized in three verses, resurrected in eight. I could go on and on. Herod's paranoia and the story of the birthday banquet, 16 verses. 16 verses where Jesus is just like barely mentioned at the beginning. So what does Mark want us to know? Well, of course, we can't really know that. Here's what I wonder about that we could agree on this morning. That the beheaded baptizer provides a sober look at our human reality. We have a somber, real look at what happens in a dysfunctional family where power is a tool and manipulation is common practice. We see Herod stuck filled with regret, and unable to do anything. He is the king, but he is immobilized, rehearsing his demise. And Mark actually shows us in this moment a passive. Herod, the story's going on without him. He's lost his shepherd, John the baptizer. He has lost his prophet at his own hands. He is stuck needing the one he beheaded, See, I hope you noticed this detail in this strange story, which is Herod had an affinity for John the Baptist. Herod was intrigued. It says Herod was perplexed and liked listening to him. Something in John's message rings true for Herod. Otherwise, why would he have protected John? Herod deeply wanted repentance and forgiveness. That sounded so good to him. But this story is a tragedy, for John's message never sunk in for Herod. Herod never came for baptism in the water. He just remained curious and at a distance. Have you ever heard a message that seemed so good and maybe true enough, but it would ask too much of you to let go? We know that he gives in to Herodias' grudge and has John imprisoned. He doubles down on his regret. And look at verse 26. Mark tells us the king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and his guests, he did not want to refuse his daughter. He is someone for whom one regret leads to another regret, which leads to another regret, and it piles up. I recently read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is amazing. And it has this transformative mental exercise this question. Imagine the end of your life and what you will think of how you lived and then live as if you were living already for the second time and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you're about to act now. I want us to wonder, is there any good news for Herod? What would happen if we could go into the story and say to Herod, live as if you were living already for the second time, as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you were about to act. Could one of those 12 that Jesus sent out had gone to Herod, actually, and invited him to repent and seek forgiveness? What if the offer of forgiveness forgiveness, would have sounded too enticing this time to pass up on? Could Herod have ever broken the cycle of his regrets? Could Herod have made his way into that next scene that begins in verse 30 with the crowds to hear Jesus teach by the shore? Be one of the sheep without a shepherd, as we see in that story, now that he lost his shepherd, John, could Jesus have had compassion for Herod, just like Jesus had for the crowds? Could the loaves and fishes have fed Herod, and Herod learned actually how to host a good banquet? Near the end of Nora's time in the midnight library, we find Mrs. Elm and Nora sitting across from each other across a chessboard. They've been playing chess. It's what they like to do when she was a little girl. And Nora, at this point, has taken each regret and, one by one, experienced her life as it would have been if it had been different. And she's feeling a ton of grief. She's wondering if there is a perfect life, one without sadness, one without even regrets. And Mrs. Elm tells her, you need to realize something if you're ever going to succeed at chess. The thing you need to realize is this. The game is never over until it is over. It isn't over if there's a single pawn still on the board. If one side is down to a pawn and a king and the other side has every player, there is still a game. And even if you were a pawn, maybe we all are, then you should remember that a pawn is the most magical piece of all. It might look small and ordinary, but it isn't. Because a pawn is never just a pawn. A pawn is a queen in waiting. All you need to do is find a way to keep moving forward, one square after another, and you can get to the other side and unlock all kinds of power. Nora stares at the books around her. So you're saying I only have pawns to play with? Mrs. Elm says, I am saying... That the thing that looks the most ordinary to you might end up being the thing that leads you to victory. You have to keep going. So is there good news for Herod? Can Herod ever keep going, but keep going in the direction actually he wants to go, to stop the regret cycle? Now is the time to ask, how do I repent instead of regret? Because regret holds on, and repentance lets go. Regret paralyzes, and repentance liberates. So if there is good news for you, Herod, it might be this. The story isn't about you. You're not the main character of the gospel, you're not the protagonist. You're not the leading actor. You're not the front man. You have made some serious mistakes and committed some serious sins, but nursing your regrets cannot make them go away. Your worst regret cannot change God's plot line in the gospel. It doesn't stop the gospel just because Herod has made these really bad choices. So Herod... Do your work. Confess your sins. Go to therapy. Find a trusted friend. Accept responsibility for your actions. Seek reparations and change. Apologize to your daughter for putting her in that situation in the first place. And get curious about why your wife is so mad. Find John the Baptist's disciples and ask them about this one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And as you do your work, Herod, hear us clearly. God is not waiting to offer you a final accounting of divine retribution with a blockbuster punishment that you're waiting on. Listen again to that baptizer who intrigued you. This is a story about God's commitment relentlessly to forgiveness. This is a story about forgiveness, liberating us from the self-centered prisons we love to create for ourselves. As Lauren read in Ephesians, it is God's good pleasure. I don't know if you noticed that. It is God's good pleasure to adopt us as children, to bestow freely grace upon us and offer forgiveness. Good pleasure So, I am curious about your regrets, but I'm more curious of who we are becoming when we let them go, and who we are becoming when God is forgiving us and we let go of our need to control the mess we feel like we created. So, tell me, who have you become when the good shepherd finds you at the edge of the cliff, nearly ready to punish yourself, and shows you a new way to live? Now that is a story I would like to hear. I close today with a prayer by Ted Loder. And it's a prayer for all the Herods among us. Not that there is a Herod necessarily among us, but that that there are things within us that can relate to that. So if you're comfortable, you can close that Bible and I want you to hold your hands out open in your palm and pray with me as I pray the prayer Ted Loader wrote. <laughs> oh God, it is hard for us to let go most times. And the squeeze we exert garbles and gnarls others. Loosen our grip on those grudges and grievances we hold so closely that we may risk exposing ourselves to the spirit of forgiving and forgiveness that changes things and resurrects dreams and courage. Loosen our grip on our fears that we may be released a little into humility and into an acceptance of my humanity. Loosen our grip on our ways and words, on our fears and fretfulness, that letting go into the depths of silence and our own uncharted longings, we may find ourselves held by you and linked anew to all life in this wild and wondrous world you love so much. So we may take to heart that you have taken us to heart. Amen. It is our tradition that um, we sing our faith following a sermon. And we do it because sometimes that's the time that we're most bold in our faith is when we sing. And during that time, I can encourage you to consider what it is that God is calling you to. And if that's something you want to share with us, whether um, to come forward for baptism or to come forward for joining the church, I'll stand right down here to receive you. We sing our faith, let us stand.